The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the gospel. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. In the very first verse, St. Mark titles his gospel account, The Beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, Son of God. Most of us know that gospel, evangelion in the Greek, means good news. And that is literally the case. But the way the word was used and understood in the ancient world had a little bit more to it. You see, in the Greek and Roman world, in the first century, a gospel was the proclamation of a military victory. A gospel was the report of a victory and the consequences of that victory, usually the victory of an important king or general or even an emperor. For example, Augustus Caesar, who styled himself the son of a god, had proclaimed his gospels that he had conquered and united the inhabited world, had civilized it. And so if things were bad for you under the Gauls or under the Egyptians, for example, they were potentially about to get a whole lot better. This was good news. If you're part of the old administration, however, this was perhaps not so good news. One would need to quickly repent and demonstrate their loyalty, their fealty to the new king, Caesar, or else. St. Mark's gospel is therefore the proclamation of a victory, specifically the victory of Jesus Christ, the King, the true Son of God. So what does it mean for us to repent and to believe in his victory? What is Jesus expecting of us when he preaches this message to us today? So I have three points for today. First, who the victory is for. Second, what it means to believe. And third, following Christ on campaign. The first, who the victory is for. St. Mark begins his story of Jesus' victory where we might expect if we were reading the biography of a king or a general at his coronation. It's easy to miss this, but part of what St. Mark wants, to see, wants us to see in his baptismal scene is John, his prophet, anointing him as king. As the prophet Samuel once anointed King David with his horn of oil, when the Father's voice declares, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. We are to hear an echo of Psalm 2, as it says, The kings of the earth stand up, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ, his King. Yet have I set my king, God says, upon my holy hill of Zion. I will rehearse the decree. The Lord hath said unto me, Thou art my son, this day have I begotten thee. Ask of me, and I will give thee the nations for thine inheritance, the ends of the earth for thy possession. And so Jesus is baptized, declared by the Father to be his beloved son and the true king, and anointed by the Holy Spirit. And immediately, what happens? The Spirit drives him out into the wilderness for 40 days to be tempted by Satan. Why? Well, 
You might remember, if you're familiar with the Scriptures, Israel's journey out into the wilderness after their exodus from Egypt. Forty years they were there being tested and tried and refined, tempted by the devil, so that they could be prepared to be God's people and a light to lighten all of the nations. You might also remember that Israel failed to remain steadfast to God. Most of them fell in the wilderness. They were bested by the tempter again. Now, Jesus is there in the wilderness for 40 days to do battle with the devil. He's there to succeed where Israel had once failed, where Adam and Eve had once failed, and to kick the serpent's tail. Now, This battle wouldn't be a particularly big deal if it were just another victory of Yahweh God over the devil. We've already seen that dozens of times in the Old Testament. The exodus from Egypt, for example, was Yahweh God judging Pharaoh and all the gods of Egypt, putting them in their place and raising up the people of Israel. Or with Elijah the prophet, for example, when he defeated Baal and his prophets, and so on and so forth. I could go on a long time. Yahweh didn't need another W. He was already batting 100. But we were O for a trillion. Ever since the garden, humanity had suffered nothing but a humiliating and crippling series of defeats at the hand of the tempter. We were crippled, blinded, and enslaved. We desperately needed the victory. But then Jesus, the God-man, in every way sharing our human nature except sin, went into the devil's territory and conquered. And this time, it was not just Yahweh's victory. It was humanity's victory. At long last, man had triumphed over the devil. And through this man, all of us, over and over again, St. Mark shows us the strange pattern of Jesus' interactions with the world around him. When lepers touch Jesus, or a woman with a flow of blood, or a corpse, all things that should have rendered him unclean and unfit to enter God's presence, what happens instead? Well, he makes them clean and whole and alive. Somehow the power flows out from him to them rather than the other way around. And when Jesus enters the waters of the Jordan to be baptized, it's not them who cleanse Jesus. He has no sin to be cleansed of. Nor does the stain of all those people's sins who were just forgiven in the Jordan River get on Jesus. Rather, he cleanses the waters and makes them fit for holy baptism, for the beginning of new divine life. When he takes our human nature upon himself, when he clothes himself in humanity, he is not infected by the curse of Adam. Rather, he confers upon us the blessing and the strength of his divinity. Just as the defeat of Adam affected all of us who are in Adam, that defeat rippled down into all humankind after him, so it is that the victory of Jesus Christ, the new man, our king, had an effect on all of human nature 
on all of us who are united to him in holy baptism, who are now in Christ. Does that make sense? This is what St. Paul was speaking of in Romans for those who are in Christ versus those who are still just in Adam. The good news, the gospel, is not that Yahweh God has triumphed again over the devil. That wouldn't be news at all. The good news is that in Christ Jesus, humanity has triumphed. We have triumphed. So our second point, what it means to believe. Fresh from his victory in the desert, Jesus comes into Galilee and preaches. It's time. The kingdom of God is at hand. It is at your very doorstep. Repent and believe the gospel. Do you believe that the kingdom of God has triumphed over its enemies? Not that Jesus has triumphed so that we don't have to struggle against sin, but that he has exalted and strengthened our human nature so that we can struggle and triumph in him, through him. I'm convinced that most of us, at least some of the time, maybe even most of the time, live as though it weren't so, myself included. We tell ourselves that we just have to make a compromise with our sins and our vicious habits. We make unspoken, codependent agreements with our spouses about things we just don't bring up with one another. If you don't bring up my TV-watching habits, I won't bring up your shopping budget. (laughs) Things like that, you know, we all have our own. We say that Jesus won, but what we really mean is something like, well, he'll win in the end, of course, but for now we accept that the devil and our sins have got us beat. It's so easy for us to make peace with our vices. But what if we did believe? What if we believe that my humanity has been renewed? That in Christ, by virtue of my baptism, I have access to a strength far beyond my own natural resources. That my old sins and vices no longer define me as a person because in Christ I'm a new creation. That my enemy, the devil, no matter how loud his roar, is just a paper tiger. He's been hog-tied and on a short leash so that I can resist him and he will flee from me. What if I really believe that with every temptation God has provided me a scape route and that his grace is working mightily within me to conform me to the image of Jesus, his son, the conqueror? Or even, as the Eucharistic preface says during Lent, that Jesus was tempted in every way as we are yet without sin so that by his grace we are able to triumph over every evil. If we truly believe that, then our Lenten repentance will be filled with confidence and with joy. We can hold our heads up high. Christ has triumphed, so we can too. The thousands of saints and martyrs in every age, men, women, even children, who have conquered their passions, overcome tyrants and torture and ridicule and dispossession of their goods, and have even given their lives for Christ, testify that this victory is really available to ordinary men and women like me and you. So now our third point, following Christ on campaign. Where do we begin? 
Where do we start in this battle? Well, from behind, the Holy Spirit likewise drives us. From above, the Father's love compels us, and before us, our champion, our Lord Jesus Christ, beckons to us and bids us to follow him into the desert for these 40 days, saying, where I am, there my servant will be also. He intends for us to join him on campaign so that we might make his victory our own. We are to take the fight into enemy territory, into the wilderness. So where's the wilderness? It starts in the depths of our own hearts. Deep down in there, each of us has the equivalent of a wild west, a desert place where the wild beasts roam. As the scripture says, there in the desert, Jesus was with the wild beasts. You might think of it as our own surprising capacity for violence and rage, for unchecked consumption and cowardice, or even to deceive, dominate, and manipulate others. But there also, by the grace of God, is the capacity for the truly angelic, or we might never expect to find it. As again, the scripture says, and the angels ministered to him. One of the early fathers of the desert put it this way. I love this quote. He says, The heart itself is only a small vessel, yet dragons are there, and lions. There are poisonous beasts, and all the treasures of evil. There are rough and uneven roads. There are jagged cliffs. But there, too, is God and the angels. Life is there in the kingdom. There, too, is light, and there are the apostles there are the heavenly cities and treasures of grace. All things lie within that little space. Yes, even the gates of Hades are really there in our hearts. This is what the desert of Lent teaches us. But what does Christ teach us? The gates of Hades shall not prevail against you. He wants us to identify those strongholds of the enemy within our hearts in that wilderness space, to call upon his help with expectation and to lay siege upon them. Now, we're all familiar with these longstanding strongholds in our, in our hearts, in our affections, like habits that regularly cool our love for Christ or our desire for prayer and higher things that drag us down to earthly desires and fears instead. As Father Chris said on Wednesday, if you were here for Ash Wednesday, if you don't know what that stronghold is, just ask your spouse. They do. Or your parent or your child. Somebody will. So, St. Paul says to us, to take up weapons of righteousness for the right hand and the left, which are not fleshly, but mighty for tearing down strongholds. So how do we take up this battle? First of all, and this is significant, first of all, we need to meditate on our baptism and let the truth of our baptism soak down deep into our very bones. We need to see ourselves in the Jordan River with Christ and hear the voice of the Father spoken over us, my beloved son, my beloved daughter. You are his adopted son or daughter in Christ. It is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom and all of its treasures, its unspeakable riches. But as a good father, he desires his children 
to learn to value his gifts, to grow in discipline, and to be freed from the sins which would destroy us. We need to see likewise how the Holy Spirit longs to be powerfully active in us, at work in us, if we allow him to be, revealing Christ to us in the scriptures and in the breaking of bread and forming the likeness of Christ in us through his virtues. And we need to know that we're never alone in the struggle. We always go to battle under Christ's banner, the sign of the cross, together with him and all the victorious hosts of heaven as our helpers. The angels and saints assist us now as the angels once ministered and assisted Christ in the desert. So there in the waters of Jordan with Christ, we soak in the love and power and goodness of God. This must come first, because this is the true foundation and wellspring of our ongoing repentance, love. We then look at Christ, who spent 40 days in solitude and silence in the desert, in unceasing prayer and communion with his Father. We might ask ourselves, can I go even an hour a day in prayer, 40 days for all of Lent? Can I do even half of that in imitation of Christ, following his pattern? And then we take that time to reflect on our baptisms, on God's purpose for our lives, and to pray and meditate on the scriptures. And then we fast. Again, as we look to Christ, who went 40 days and 40 nights with no food at all, firm in his resolve, we might likewise ask ourselves, can I go even 24 hours without food on Fridays in solidarity with Christ crucified, with Christ in the desert? He enjoyed no delicacies or decadent foods at all. Can I abstain from meat one or two days a week or from sugar or alcohol on the weekdays in Lent? Obviously, consult with your doctor if you're about fasting, if you're not in good health, if you're pregnant or nursing, etc., if you're old or very young. But no matter who you are, there's at least something that you can do. Just like tithing for the first time, fasting is scary at first. Part of us wonders if there really is life on the other side of that next hunger pang, if we really can survive the next stomach contraction. But there is life on the other side, and glorious freedom too. The church's long-accrued wisdom is that if we can become accustomed to disciplining ourselves at the meal table, we will grow in self-control and discipline in every area of our lives, in our speech, in our judgments, in our interactions with people, you name it. As we remain in the desert with Christ, fasting and praying with him, we can expect to grow slowly in courage to resist temptation. It's not that the temptations always get weaker. Sometimes they don't. But that we get braver. We learn that we can lean on God's strength and stand firm when the devil, that paper tiger, roars. Of course, there will be defeats for us in store in Lent. That's no surprise. It's inevitable. Christ doesn't expect us to be perfectly successful in our Latin disciplines. What he expects of us is for us to follow him, to struggle with him, to persevere, and to stand up again when we fall. We only fail when we stop standing up. 
And as we grow in the courage to resist temptation, we also grow in freedom. Each of these strongholds of the enemy in our hearts is filled with the treasures that the devil has stolen from us over the course of our lives, over years and sometimes decades. Imagine what would be possible if we could muster up the courage to pull down those gates and to reclaim those treasures. We would have more energy to think and focus on heavenly things and to serve our neighbors without our egos getting in the way so much. We would be free to desire what God desires for our lives and to listen to his holy word for us. We would be free to offer more of the whole of our heart back to the God who has so generously offered himself, the whole of himself for us. Not to mention when we fast, we literally have more free time for prayer and spiritual activity because we're not spending all of that time that we would have otherwise been meal prepping and eating and cleaning up dishes. Someday take a timer with you and, and figure out how much time you spent on, on meals during the course of a day. If you could just skip one or two of those in a week, uh, what you might have available for prayer instead. Someday, we all hope to say with St. Paul, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, because it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now, friends, our Lord has said, in the world you will have tribulation, you will have trial and difficulty and temptation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. Christ in you has overcome. And this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. So, repent and believe in the gospel. Christ has overcome, and with him, the door to freedom lies open for you and I as well. Let us pray. Grant us, O Lord, to begin this campaign of our Christian warfare with holy fasting, that as we do battle with spiritual wickedness, we may be defended by the aids of self-denial. Through Christ our Lord. Amen. Thank you for tuning in to our Trinity Episcopal Church podcast. To find out more about the work God is doing through Trinity, visit us online at trinityvero.org and follow us on Facebook.